devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms with generosity to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with a Simon called the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angels who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared for him, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now this happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. But while Peter was greatly puzzled about and what to make of this vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you, so get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So, Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. This is our scripture for today. been gracious to this church for over a hundred years. That's uh, a commendable 
thing. And I, I want you to continue to lift up that search committee in prayer as they do the work that they're doing as, uh, as we move into the next phase of their, their process uh, in the search for a new preaching minister. Well, this text that I read a moment ago, I, I need to do two things as we get into the sermon. Uh, one is to make a confession and the other is to do a little bit of geographic work. The confession I want to make is that if I'm stepping on your toes this morning, uh, I'm stepping on my heart. This, this sermon is one that uh, I need to hear and I need to hear it repeatedly. And uh, so just, uh, so if you come away a little uh, singed, that's okay. Just know that I'm feeling it even more so. The second thing I want to say is that uh, this, this story begs just a little bit of geographic orientation, and since I don't have a map and I don't have three day, uh, three, uh, 3D virtual reality glasses to give to everyone or anything, I want you to imagine that you're, you're sitting in the Mediterranean Sea right now, and you're looking at uh, Judea. And uh, if you're looking at the coastline of Judea and Israel, you would find there a, a, a harbor city called Joppa about right here. And uh, then, and this is about, I'm, I'm thinking about the time of, uh, of the first century where our story takes place. You would find then about 30 or 35 miles up the coast, another, a large city, this small town, large city up here called Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea. It was a city that uh, Herod the Great, you know, the guy that tried to kill Jesus, uh, over the, in about 30, 40 years of his uh, lifetime and administration, a big city came, was built. He, he named it after some guy by the name of Caesar in an effort to sort of suck up to the powers that be. And he did a great job. In fact, all kinds of technological advances were part of this city development, including a brand new big harbor, where Herod's engineers figured out how to do this. They, they figured out how to make uh, and utilize cement underwater. A rather technological advance for the period. In fact, you can still see the remnants of the old harbor jutting out of the Mediterranean Sea right out in here, just about to hit the bases right here. Maybe a tenor, I'm not sure. Uh, right out in here. All right. So we got Joppa, we got Caesarea, and I'll name another city in just a minute or two, but I want you to kind of get a sense of what's happening here. Now, this, uh, this message uh, is important in so many, so many ways, uh, partly because this story figures deeply in the history of the ch- Christian church, and I hope to point that out as we go along. But it's all rooted in something that I struggle with, and I believe you do too, and that is there are people in the world that we don't always like. There are people in the world, maybe in our, in our lives, that we find ourselves wanting to hold at some distance. I find this even more so right now during this presidential political season where there are people that I don't like on both sides of the aisle. There are people out on the right and out on the left that just make me want to cringe. How is it that I'm supposed to be Jesus to people like that? Maybe it happens to you when you uh, uh, go shopping and you bump into some burly biker or you find yourself in the grocery market with someone, a woman who's dressed in Middle Eastern garb. Maybe it's when you bump into some guy like Eddie that I bumped into some years ago who was from Brooklyn 
And I didn't like him from the first, but somehow or another he kept coming to church every week and I had to deal with Eddie, Eddie from Brooklyn. He greased his hair, he wore leather jackets, black heavy-soled shoes, Doc Martens probably, and he, he was the kind of guy that just rubbed me the wrong way. Eddie, had to deal with Eddie. Well, here in this story, we're dealing with someone that from the point of view of the author, we're not supposed to like. His name is Cornelius. And here we are up in Caesarea with Cornelius, this outsider, this non-Jewish person who just, doesn't it irk you? He's a God-fearer. He goes to the synagogue every Saturday and prays. In fact, he prays constantly every day. He gives alms to take care of the poor. This guy is disgustingly good, and yet he's an outsider. What am I supposed to make of this guy, Cornelius? And who are the guys and the gals, the people in your life, who stand on the other side of the fence from us, who's just beyond our view? Is it the refugee from some place like Syria? Is it your non-church-going neighbor who plays his music a little too loud at night? Is it the young adult that you have to face that's got more metal in their face than they do in the grill of their car? Is it the elderly person that you seldom see? Is it the person who wears tattoos on their shirt sleeve like you wear shirt sleeves? Or maybe, for all you know, underwear like that. How about the worker, the person that is on food stamps, the college student that, yeah, that's new to you? Maybe it's the person who paints your house or that fixes your plumbing or cuts your grass. Maybe it's the person in the cubicle next to you at work. Who is that person who sits on the other side of the fence from you? That's Cornelius in this story. And I say that because, interestingly enough... It is this story and what happens in it that alters the face of Christianity. Caesarea becomes the face of Christianity in the second, third, and fourth centuries. All because of a single God-fearing person who stood a far distance. What do we do with our Corneliuses? Then down here in Caesar, uh, down here in Joppa, we meet up with other people. We meet up with a fellow by the name of Simon Peter. But there's other people that have been in Joppa before Simon Peter that I want to remind you of. Every time I go to Joppa, I've been in Israel half a dozen times. Every time I go to Joppa, a little seaside village, Tel Aviv has now grown around it, big city. But you can still find a few streets right on the seaside with a quaint little harbor, the remnants of what was there during uh, biblical times. And there I can't help but remember not just Simon Peter in our story today, but I remember another story about a a fellow who showed up in Joppa, a cat by the name of Jonah, who also had a word from the Lord. Go to Nineveh, was Jonah's call. Do you remember the story? He ends up in Joppa because in Joppa you could get on a boat and either go north up the coastline, the Mediterranean coastline, up a ways and get off the boat. And what he was supposed to do was go to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh, 
one of the largest cities of the ancient world during the time of Jonah. We now know it as Mosul. It's been in the news these past two weeks as Iraqi and American forces have tried to drive out ISIS from Mosul. That's Nineveh. In the day of Jonah, it was filled with 120,000, one of the largest 120,000 people. A city as large or larger than San Angelo, in the ancient world, a very large city, full of wickedness. And Jonah saw them as the other. In fact, if you were a Jew in that time of Jonah, the, the people that you hated on the most, the people you talked about at coffee break as the other, were those those Ninevites, those dirty Ninevites. And Jonah was told by God, go and preach to them that they may repent and turn from their sins. And Jonah goes to Joppa and he's got a decision to make. Do I get on a boat and go north up the coastline and head to Nineveh or do I go the opposite direction, let's say Tarshish, and head out of here? Well, I think even our school-aged children know what Jonah decided. And he ended up being a part of a fish story, right? Well, it's that place, it's that place that Peter goes up on the rooftop, a little porch area there, and looking out over the beautiful Mediterranean, is there to pray. He gets hungry, but in his hunger pains, a trance comes on him, and he has that vision that we read about a moment ago. And there we find Peter doing something that I think I do, and I think perhaps you do as well. It's when he is presented with something new, with a new possibility, a new way of thinking about God, a new way of understanding what makes for right and wrong in the world. He says, no way, no, 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 Lord, for I have never done that before. No, 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 no. And in that moment, he articulates for us the challenge we find when we come up with a God who is always up to new things for the sake of the world. New stuff. And yet we respond with, I have never. That I have never attitude gets us in a lot of trouble, actually, in the world. It happens in business. I was recently reading a book called uh, Fumbling for the Future by Douglas Smith and Robert Alexander. They tell the story of how the personal laptop computer came into existence. In fact, according to these authors, Xerox was the first persons to come up with a laptop computer. Now, how many of you own a Xerox laptop computer or ever have? No, you haven't because you've got one from IBM, from Dell, from Apple, from Tandy. You might even have one from Lotus, but you don't have one from Xerox because the Xerox people looked at that and said, well, this will never fly. Well, of course it won't because you don't have the imagination to think about new possibilities. It can happen in other ways. I uh, read a, uh, recently a biography from James Simpson who was working in the middle of the 19th century to bring about uh, the use of vaccinations to prevent disease and all the resistance that, that people gave against that in the middle of the 19th century. What do you mean giving me a little bit of smallpox or something in order to vaccinate me against smallpox? And he writes and says, it's sort of like what's happening when people start talking about uh, digging a canal across the Panama, uh, this country of Panama. It'll never happen, he said. It'll never happen. Or will it? 
Or will it? Well, it did in the early part of the 20th century. When we begin to say, it never will happen, or never on my watch, or I have never ever, we're setting ourselves up to put ourselves in opposition to the ever-working newness of God's possibilities to do new and powerful things. In fact, John Locke would say, it is a duty of Christians that we owe to God to have our minds constantly disposed to entertain and receive truth wherever we may meet it. Our first and great duty then is to bring our studies and our inquiry after knowledge, a mind that is covetous, covetous for truth. That's an old dread, dead, dead dry guy by the name of John Locke. Now, What I'm suggesting is that's the moment that Peter is standing at, and it's a moment that I face and you face when we come up with the eddies in our life. Will I move beyond the barrier that I have in my mind and my heart to some possible new thing, or will I continue to push against it? No, 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 not me. In church, this happens all the time. It happens for us collectively and communally as we think about new ministers or have studies about the way in which God is using the gifts of men and women in our church. And we find ourselves saying, oh, this is new. I don't know what to do about this. Well, here we are with Peter on that porch looking out over the Mediterranean and having this time of reflection that comes to Peter where he has to ask and reflect on what is God up to anyway. For me and Eddie, it meant I needed to go have a cup of coffee with Eddie. I didn't want to really, but I did. You know what happened when I made my way from my Joppa to that coffee shop? I found myself in a new place. I found out for all of his obnoxiousness and bizarreness and weirdness, He was a man who was married to a woman who didn't love him and had a beautiful three- and four-year-old daughter that he was scared stiff he was going to lose. And he wanted her in church in the worst way. He himself was not a Christian. He just knew that she needed to be in a good place because her mama wasn't good. And in the journey that I took to Caesarea with Eddie, I found out that here was a man who was looking for Jesus in his life. He just didn't have the language for it. Peter made a journey as well, just like Jonah did before, though Jonah's journey was a little different than Peter's. They all went on journeys. They ended up in different places. Peter ends up in Caesarea, and there in Caesarea, in in, uh, Cornelius' house, uh, suddenly light bulbs begin to go off for him and he begins to recognize something and he makes this declaration in chapter 10, verse 34, beyond the reading I gave a few moments ago, where Peter says, I understand truly that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he goes on to preach the story about Jesus. You know what's the striking about that? is that word partiality is a strange word. There are a lot of people who wrote a lot of stuff in the early, in, in, the, in the century before and after Jesus. A lot of Greek is out there. A lot of ancient authors. But you know, that word partiality does not show up in anything except your Bible. 
from the first and second and third centuries. It is a Christian term. No partiality. It was a word that Peter had to make up. And Luke uses it. It means, basically, to look at somebody's face and simply accept it for what that face is. That when Jesus, when God looks at a face, he sees no difference between your face and your face and my face or your face. That, that God expect, that embraces Jew, uh, Jewish kosher eating folk and he embraces Gentile folk. He takes even Christian pot eat licking, uh, potluck eating folk, and he takes, that was good on paper, <laughs> potluck eating folk, and people from Brooklyn, whose life and background, as I got deeper, was connected with all kinds of dark stuff, like mafia, and a whole host of other stuff, that even Eddie, and maybe even especially Eddie, was favored by God. Because here's the point, one of the points in this church, uh, and that is, I think we often read this story and we think that Cornelius is the convert in this story. And I don't want to minimize that, he is. But there's another convert in this story as well, and it's Peter. And that reminds me, and that's where I'm stepping on my toes, it's me, and I think it's you, that all need to hear the story and be reminded that we have been called to head out to Caesarea. That there is new things for us to learn about God's embrace of all people. Whether they look like us, whether they dress like us, whether they eat the same kind of food like us, whether they're the same uh, race or color or gender or any of the things that separate us one from the other, that God is calling us without without partiality to participate in something new that he is doing in the world. That, my friends, is is what we've got to wrestle with this morning. In fact, I would suggest to you that we're all down in Joppa today, and we're not the first persons to be there. Jonah's been here. Peter's here, and you and I are here. And God is speaking. God said the same thing to Jonah that he said to Peter that he's saying to you and I. I've got people in this world that I love dearly, and they need someone to speak a word of grace to them, to embrace them for who they are, not for what they aren't from your point of view. And we can make choices. We can make choices like Jonah did. We can make choices like Peter did. What kind of choice will we make? That's the critical thing, church. And as we wrestle with that, let me just throw out one distinct thing to consider. That at the end of the day, I don't know about you, but I want to be where God is at work. And I'm telling you that God is interested in Nineveh. Up the coast, hang a right toward Mosul. God is interested in Caesarea and the Corneliuses of the world. That means another right turn just 
You can walk it 35 miles. That sounds like a far way by walking, but in the ancient world, that's what they did. Or we can hop on a boat and head southward toward Tarshish. But here's the deal. God's Spirit is at work in those places about all that you'll get if you head to Tarshish, if that's your choice, will be just a bunch of fishtails. What do you want with your life? Do you want to participate in the glory of God's new work? Or are you the kind of person who would just soon set back and rock back on your heels with your arms folded and say, no, 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 not me. I have never done that. Ugh. I know where I want to be. I want to be among those who find themselves wrapped up and participating with the gracious love of God for all humankind. What will your choice be this morning as we stand and sing?